Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. I think it's important for people to understand that there are people like Daniel Hitchcock who kind of fade into history. You know, they're not the big household names of George Washington or Daniel Green or Benedict Arnold, and yet they're very important. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Damien Crigot talking about Colonel Daniel Hitchcock of Rhode Island, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Damien Crigo, and he'll be discussing the life of Colonel Daniel Hitchcock of Rhode Island. Hitchcock's life is a pretty interesting one. He serves in a number of different theaters of the war, but he comes from an unlikely background. He's an attorney. This war is always amazing to me, how it pulls people from different walks of life into positions they probably never thought possible just a decade earlier. We'll talk about it more through the interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Damien Crego. Damien Crego, thank you for joining us. Uh, It's great to be back, Brady. Uh, Thanks for having me on again. Tell us about your background. So I uh, grew up here in Connecticut uh, through the bicentennial uh, in the 1970s and 80s. And great thing about being in Connecticut is it was easy to get up to Boston or down to New York for some big events, um, but also have uh, a historic town like Fairfield where some Rev War events had, had occurred. And, um, you know, I think it it brought the history to life, especially for a young person like me. And, um, I went off, I, I always knew I loved history and I went off and, and majored in history at Hillsdale college in Michigan and did my bachelor's in early modern European history at Colorado state university, same place where, uh, Fred Anderson, uh, graduated from decades prior to myself. What first drew your interest into this topic? So, Many years ago as a kid, um, my father could tell I was interested in history and he wanted to share our family history with me. And um, he showed me a Hitchcock family genealogy that he had inherited from my great grandmother. And um, in there was um, not only our direct line, but some cousins that were interesting. And one of them was a Colonel Daniel Hitchcock. And they mentioned briefly how he had served you know, with distinction in the American revolution, but he died young of disease. And that's the first I had heard of him. And then many years later, as the internet was coming out and I was becoming an early professional historian, I thought, well, let's see what's out there. And I started scouring around. There wasn't much at the time, but as my research skills improved and I got to know more archives and as the internet got better, a few more things started coming to light about Colonel Daniel Hitchcock. Um, one of the great resources was uh, 
Yale and the revolution, um, not something I knew about 20 years ago. And Yale did a very good job in the 1930s of talking about all the different people who graduated from Yale who had served in the revolution in whatever capacity. So um knew that once I had enough material to make an article, this was something I, I that was both personal and professional that I wanted to accomplish because there just simply wasn't much written about uh, Daniel Hitchcock. I certainly wasn't reinventing the wheel, and I wanted to make sure to honor someone who deserved to be remembered. Talk about Hitchcock's early life. So we don't know a whole lot, but we know the basics, uh, thanks to church records and a few other things. He's born in 1739 in Springfield, Mass. Um, he goes off eventually to study Yale College. Um, unfortunately, while he's a senior there, when he's 20 years old, he uh, his mother passes away at a young age, so she didn't get to see him graduate, which is unfortunate. And it reminds me of my other life. I was a senior at Hillsdale when my mom passed away. She didn't get to see me graduate. Um and then after his graduation, he briefly serves in Northampton, Massachusetts, uh, learning to become a lawyer. Eventually opens up shop as an attorney in Providence, Rhode Island, um, probably in the 1750s uh, um, or 1760s, rather. If you could, talk about the plan to seize the gas bay. Sure, a little bit. Um, so... The, the Sons of Liberty, everyone, when you hear that, you think of Boston, whether it's throwing tea into Boston Harbor or Paul Revere or anyone else, you know, Samuel Adams. But actually, the, the Sons of Liberty had chapters up and down the East Coast, including in Providence and New York City and elsewhere. So this is the Providence chapter, and apparently Daniel Hitchcock was a member. Um, John Brown, who has a very large mansion to this day, that's the public museum. He's kind of the leader along with Abraham Whipple. Um, and there's a gathering of them. They, they are very wealthy is what we would say today. One percent, one percenter doing trade with the Caribbean. And they gather at the Sabine Tavern and the Sabine Tavern is at the bottom of what we consider college Hill on the Eastern side of, of Providence. Brown university is at the, the top of that Hill. And um, Brown and Whipple and others, there, there's dozens of people gathering at this tavern saying, we got to do something about this gas bay. Well, news comes by whatever means that the gas bay has run aground off of uh, Warwick, Rhode Island, um, in the bay. And um, the captain is hoping that the tides will change and that he eventually can break free and set sail again. Well, before he has a chance to uh, wait for the new tide, the new high tide to come, the Sons of Liberty who had gathered at the Sabine Tavern uh, marched to the beat of a young drummer boy out to the boats in the harbor, get on these whale boats or row boats, row out, storm the boat, uh, the ship, and um, go through, they rifle through all the papers for a little while. And there is an altercation, you know, it, it, it gets kind of violent. No one is killed. No one is seriously wounded, but captain uh, Dunningston is shot in the groin by one of the sons of Liberty. Uh, I would presume from a, a pistol or a, a musket. And uh, thankfully 
he survives. Um, but um, they decided the Sons of Liberty to force all of the uh, British revenue agents off the ship, and they decided to, to burn it to the waterline, and they're successful at that. So it's, for that reason, considered um, a very significant event, if not the most significant event, between the Boston Massacre of 1770 and the Boston Tea Party of 73. And it often gets overlooked. You know, the the Boston area narrative sort of is what you learn about in eighth grade history or something. And so Rhode Islanders like to uh, remind people of, of their role in that era. You write a lot about Hitchcock's correspondence with John Adams in your article. Could you summarize that for us? Yeah, so how that came about was I was looking for any important letters that correspondence that Dana Hitchcock had with other distinguished people. I, you know, obviously you hope for George Washington or another famous person from an island like Nathaniel Green. Um, didn't see those. So I was just as happy though, to see these letters that are at the mass historical society in the Adams papers, uh, letters between John Adams and Daniel Hitchcock. And um, there are several of them. They're from 1776, basically. And the nature of those letters is based around Continental Army politics. Um, In other words, to be more specific, that Daniel Hitchcock had concerns about the the way in which Congress went about promoting, uh, appointing people, Brigadier General or Major General. Uh, on the one hand, there were a lot of Southerners he felt that were getting promoted. And of course, um, the fact that Congress needed to respect the fact that populated states needed to be properly represented. So the larger the colony, the larger you know, your, your regiments were going to be, or the more numerous your regiments, and you would have greater need for brigadier and major generals. So smaller colonies like um, Delaware and Rhode Island just weren't going to have as many, but you would have a sizable contingent, let's say, of generals from Virginia, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. So Hitchcock is is complaining to Adams about, it seems like there's more Southerners getting promoted to Brigadier General than New Englanders. His other complaints um, have to do with who is getting promoted in New England. Uh, He's pretty outspoken. He complains about Bennett and Arnold being made a brigadier general in one of his letters. He thought it would have been enough for Arnold to be um, a a, a brigadier, I mean, a a bird colonel, a full colonel of a regiment. Why does he have to be rushed and made a brigadier general? And then there's the in-state or in-colony of Rhode Island rivalry. Uh, James Mitchell Varnum seems to be his main rival. I guess they didn't get along. There doesn't seem to be any correspondence between Mitchell and uh, Hitchcock and Varnum. Um, John Adams had already proposed to Congress that Varnum be a brigadier general, and uh, he was rewarded with that. Hitchcock has to take a back seat, but he had been hoping that if Varnum's going to be a brigadier general, that, that he himself would be a brigadier general appointed by Congress. And of course, that never happened. Uh, Hitchcock will die before he can be promoted. Um, So a lot of it's politics. And then one letter stands out at the end. I think it's the last letter that um, Adams writes to Hitchcock before Hitchcock dies. And um, 
actually, this is a letter that Hitchcock is writing to Adams complaining about how bad the militia are. He said they're not worth a farthing. You know, after one volley of musket fire, they all uh, scatter. And we need to, you know, Hitchcock's basically reinforcing the idea, as many Federalists did, we need a strong national army. We need a we need the U.S. Army. Take us through Hitchcock's military service. Sure. So initially, he is a militia officer for uh, some kind of local regiment in Rhode Island. Uh, once the war actually breaks out, you know, that's like 1774. After Lexington and Concord, it's just days later that um, the General Assembly of Rhode Island uh, appoints him colonel of his own regiment, so Hitchcock's regiment, as they would have said. A lot of the regiments were, were named after the regimental commander. Um, he will participate in the siege of Boston um, from the fall of 75 all the way through to March of 1776, uh, including at Dorchester Heights when they have the cannons aimed ominously down from Dorchester Heights on to, to Boston. It forces the uh, evacuation of Gates and his army. Um, and then um, he follows Washington to New York. And in the New York campaign, that is one in which many generals got sick, or colonels for that matter, one example is Jedediah Huntington having um, some kind of yellow fever, so he had to sit out the Battle of Long Island in August of 1776, and it appears the same thing happened to Daniel Hitchcock. Um, somebody had made note of the fact that Hitchcock was not in command of his regiment for the day of the battle, um, but his regiment performs well enough, but uh, it just shows that uh, disease was ever-present. It wasn't just smallpox either. Kind of as a part two, uh, you know, then we get into sort of the, the more famous or colorful battles, the, the Trenton campaign. So after they, uh, you know, the Continental Army retreats across New Jersey, they go into Pennsylvania, of course, with Washington. And um, the plan was for the first and famous Battle of Trenton that Hitchcock would be part of a southern flank that he and Cadwallader and James Ewing, they were the three commanders, uh, brigade level, uh, would attack Trenton from the southern flank uh, to reinforce Washington Green and everyone else coming in from the north. The problem was that the Delaware River there uh, was did not have favorable conditions for crossing. There was some ice on the river, just enough that some of the infantry could cross, but they couldn't carry any heavy baggage, cannons, or horses. Um, they also didn't have any, uh, boats to cross in. So it was decided to cancel that crossing. They had to pull back anyone who had made it across on the ice and inform Washington they weren't going to make it. And so they didn't. And of course we know the story. Washington was, was able to succeed in his surprise missions anyway. Um, the, the heaviest fighting that Hitchcock appears to be directly involved in is the Second Battle of Trenton, January 2nd, and it's otherwise known as the Battle of Assunpink Creek. Um, and, of course, it takes day, you know, place a few days later after the first and more famous Battle of Trenton. And this one has a bridge crossing over the Assunpink Creek, and that is the whole nexus of the battle, and it's, it's heavy fighting. Edward Hand is known for having done heroic actions with his Pennsylvanians, 
the British have withering fire. There's cannons involved. Um, there seems to be some kind of hill uh, overlooking this site and a mill house there, um, taking advantage of the running water and the limited illustrations that are out there depicted by artists from the time period. Hitchcock, his role is not as clear as we would like it to be. We have a couple eyewitnesses who vaguely give references to Washington issuing Hitchcock to participate in the battle, but we're not, it's, it's a little vague as to what role. By the time Princeton uh, um, occurs the next day, the Battle of Princeton on January 3rd, uh, unfortunately, Hitchcock at this point has begun to succumb to tuberculosis. He might have had the tuberculosis for weeks and, and prior. We don't know, but it seemed to have ebbed and flowed. We don't know how he got it either, but it's pretty clear that um, from the records that he's not in the Battle of Princeton, but his regiment does very well there. Um, he's just not strong enough, and he, and he dies just a week later. How did he die? So he dies of tuberculosis. Um, at this point, the Battle of Princeton is over. The Army moves back up northeast to Morristown um, for their winter encampment at Jackie Hollow. He's probably riding bedridden in a cart at this point and might have been brought to a doctor to see if they could save him or at least make him comfortable as he's dying. We don't know exactly where he died in Morristown, but it must have been close to the green, and that's where he's buried. Um, he's buried in the cemetery of a Presbyterian church facing the green um, in the small city of Morristown. Uh, thankfully, the cemetery is in excellent shape. There was no headstone for Daniel Hitchcock for a few hundred years. Fortunately, we have a lot of details about his funeral because there were two eyewitnesses who wrote about it, um, two participants in the funeral who wrote about it in their diaries, um, including one who basically officiated. He was kind of the master of ceremonies, an officer. And so I talk about that near the end of the article. And one of the most fascinating elements of, of it is the idea of this, this command in a setting like a funeral of mourn arms where you're reversing the musket in your hands so that the muzzle rests on your foot and then you rest your forehead on the, the butt of the uh, musket. In the reenacting world, it's been debated or whether or not that actually had occurred during the American Revolution. And this diary entry describing the mourn arms and what it looked like is proof that it did really occur, um, at least as of January 1777. So for decades, I mean, for centuries, rather, there was no headstone. Um, Daniel, that's one of the great tragedies and and kind of goes back to the beginning of of this interview. You know, why did I want to write the article? There's no likeness of Hitchcock, no artist, as far as we know, ever painted Hitchcock. There's no Daniel Hitchcock house that we know of or any business location. Um, all we have are his letters. And, and this, the third strike is no gravesite, no known gravesite. So it was in 2008 that a Rhode Island historian was able to team with a park ranger, National Park Service ranger from, from Morristown National Park to determine where his grave likely was um, and that it was at this Presbyterian ceremony uh, cemetery. So in 2008, that's when uh, they did a special dedication ceremony and had a new 
DOD granite style um, headstone installed with a ceremony. What should the legacy of Hitchcock be? I think the fact that he was a, a brave um, leader, both on and off the battlefield, that he was outspoken in his letters, that he was well-regarded. Um, I think readers of the article will find that there's, there's interesting art- letters in here from people like Dr. Benjamin Rush, who uh, attest to the heroism of, of Hitchcock in his service. And I think it's important for people to understand that there are people like Daniel Hitchcock who kind of fade into history. You know, they're not the big household names of George Washington, or Daniel Green, or Benedict Arnold, and yet they're very important. And, and articles like this shed life on, shed light rather, on what it's like to be an officer. And I, I think one of the other elements is it shows the, the important factor one way or another, the disease has on war. It, it took Hitchcock's life. You know, we always hear about Washington inoculating the troops for smallpox, but you had all, all these other diseases out there, uh, maybe typhoid, certainly yellow fever. Um, in this case, it was um, tuberculosis. So there were a lot of uh, challenges for soldiers of all ranks, and it wasn't just foot soldiers that would die of disease. And had he lived he probably would have been a Brigadier General. Damien Crego, thanks again. Thank you, Brady. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.